0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, the interlude we became.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone. It's summer break, so we're going to take a bit of a vacation from Temerant for the next few months for a trip to the Big Apple or at least the Lovecraftian-slash-magical-realist version of it in N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. This episode, Episode 1, The Unspeakable Barbarity of Urban Planning and Design, will be covering the prologue, the first interruption, and chapters 1 and 2.
1: Oh, you're making me want to change what my recommended thing is. Too bad. Well, no, not too bad. Recommending things is a good thing. Finding things that I want to recommend absolutely totally a good thing
0: true can't have too many good things so before we get too much further let's just get the content warning out of the way while this book is a lot of fun it features frank discussions of race gender and sexuality in contemporary america from the perspective of marginalized communities it's important stuff and it's worth learning about this book also uses a lot of what famed premier league broadcaster arlo would refer to as fruity language if you can handle that We hope you'll give it a listen.
1: This just means that I'm going to be editing in a lot of shirts, forks, other things, probably, as I go along.
0: So as always, we assume that you've read the associated passage, or at least you don't mind spoilers. Naturally, we also want you to be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. Finally, say it with me, we are in no way affiliated with N.K. Jemisin or her publisher, Orbit Books. Okay, with all the bookkeeping out of the way, let's dive in.
1: So, like all awesome fantasy novels, this one has a map. But rather than it being something made up by the author, this is actually a map of New York.
0: And it's got some hand-drawn annotations on it, too. We even have a pen that it looks like someone has crossed some stuff out with, made a few notes here and there, and drawn a few legends on it.
1: The artist in me says that there is absolutely no way that that pen made those markings on this paper, but I digress. There's also a sticker for a checker cab dream weddings and a business card for Better New York Foundation in which someone has drawn eyes in the O's of foundation.
0: It's a little creepy.
1: I really like the way that this map has been all marked up and there's little hints and clues about what you're getting into. And for those of us who are not familiar with New York, it helps ground the story a little bit better.
0: Yeah, it gives us a sense of the unique geography and relationships of all these various boroughs. So let's kick it off with the prologue See, what had happened was this prologue serves as our principal introduction to the premise of the book, as well as one of our main characters, the primary avatar of New York City. We're just going to call him New York for now. He's young, he's queer, he's black, he's a street artist, he does not have a permanent residence, he lives in the city, and he is the city.
1: The best thing about this book is that this one instantly grabbed me. The whole premise of the story is cities are living beings, and there is a human that embodies the entirety of a city.
0: And it's sort of an emergent principle too. Not every city is alive like this. There are plenty of dead cities. Or cities that have never been alive.
1: Or aren't alive yet.
0: And the explanation in the book is good. Great cities are like any other living things. They're being born and maturing and wearying and dying in their turn. Cities really are different. They make a weight on the world, a tear in the fabric of reality like black holes. As more and more people come in and deposit their strangeness and leave and get replaced by others, the tear widens. Eventually it gets so deep that it forms a pocket, connected only by the thinnest thread of whatever cities are made of. The separation starts a process, and in that pocket, the many parts of the city begin to multiply and differentiate." So within this world, there are multiple great living cities, but in the Americas, really, there's only a few.
1: And some of them have died upon birth.
0: That's what happened to New Orleans, for instance.
1: Which is an interesting way of incorporating things like Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. So I like how N.K. Jemisin uses real-life events to kind of explain how certain things in this reality have happened differently than the way that we understand them. Hurricane Katrina was a symptom of the overarching evil that ultimately led to the downfall of New Orleans' life.
0: It's worth noting though that New Orleans still exists as a husk of its former self, and it could yet again be alive.
1: There's mention of places like Pompeii and Atlantis.
0: Meanwhile, the other living city in the Americas is the other principal character in this prologue, the avatar of Sao Paulo, Brazil, who serves as a sort of mentor figure for this fledgling city.
1: And he is the newest of all of the living cities, which include places like Hong Kong, who was Sao Paulo's mentor, and Paris, who is stuffy.
0: (laughs) One of the things that you quickly learn about both New York and Sao Paulo is that they're complicated. These are not just uniformly good people representing uniformly good cities. I love this description of Sao Paulo. A sprawling jewel with filth-encrusted facets, a thing that stinks of dark coffee and the bruised grass of a football pitch and traffic noise and familiar cigarette smoke. There is this element of grime and filth and decay. He's dirty, he's got a little bit of this patina to him. He's lived, and he contains multitudes, both the phenomenally rich and the astronomically poor. Between these towering spires and sprawling favelas, all of that encompasses the experience of Sao Paulo.
1: But there's still an element of luxury, but it's been corrupted.
0: And it makes sense. I mean, even as cities can be wonderful, vibrant cultural places, they can be immensely destructive to the environments around them. Consider like you look at smog and greenhouse gas emissions and all sorts of stuff. For instance, in India, entire wetlands have been paved over, turning them into these massive floodplains because the water that normally would seep into the ground just has nowhere to go. So it just piles up leading to these massive floods.
1: The thing about the embodiments of the city in this book is that they incorporate all facets of life in the city. They incorporate all of the infrastructure. They incorporate all of the people, all of the living beings, and there is power to be derived from those things in the real world. The life of the city is... Portrayed is almost a different dimensional shift that is layered on top of what everyone else sees.
0: Yeah, there's sort of a parallel reality that the avatars of these cities can interact with where you can see them in their true forms versus the mundane reality.
1: And so when we're talking about the main avatar, New York, he is a street artist He knows the city. He is hyper aware of his city. And one of the things that we see him doing in this prologue is giving the city a way to breathe. The beginning of the book is very evocative. The character of New York sings and is joyful and is painting mouths, yawning mouths, all over the city.
0: I love how he says, the only ones who could see it would be passing airplanes or helicopters from the police. But I don't care. It's not for them. It's for the city itself. The other thing that's really interesting is when we contrast Sao Paulo and New York. So New York is hungry, both literally and figuratively.
1: He's homeless. He has... A tenuous grasp on the things like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs things he doesn't have a steady way to eat he doesn't have a steady place to sleep but Mm -hmm. this is the city that never sleeps
0: and above all he's not just alive he's living he's also creative and desperate And he's a little too caught up in his own life to pay too much attention to the bigger picture. And I think there's something to that that speaks to the psyche of the overall city itself. The reputation that New Yorkers have is for being a little bit self-absorbed and convinced that they're the only ones that matter, that, you know, they're the center of the world. And financially and culturally, in many cases, that's correct. We also here get our first... Introduction to the Enemy. Sao Paulo warns New York that as the city is being born, it will be attacked by these agents of the enemy, this nameless otherworldly entity that seems to prey on cities and has killed many before and keeps many from being born.
1: This world has seen other cities fail recently, including London.
0: London had a particularly fractious element where it broke apart and then just all of its various constituent neighborhoods and towns essentially turned on each other, leading to the downfall of the primary avatar. It's sort of this homogenizing force. It represents brutal authority. It represents mostly whiteness. It's gentrification. It's homogenization. It is white cultural hegemony
1: it is destroying culture because it doesn't fit with the standardized version of what life should be
0: it's about making things comfortable and easy and sanding off all of the rough edges from people and cities and places filing off anything in the history that would be objectionable or uncomfortable or shameful.
1: Ignoring the history of places, ignoring the brutality that has shaped places.
0: Our city here, New York and its constituent boroughs, they're messy. They are not always harmonious. They are not always good. They are built on pain and suffering. A lot of truly horrible things have happened in them. And that history has to be acknowledged. and It has to be understood. Can't be swept away and put into this sort of gentrified Starbucks version of reality. Our first introduction to it is a pair of police officers that are actually one weird eldritch combination thing
1: and that is our first real inkling of that horror element being brought into this there's something unsettling throughout the whole prologue it's alluded to at the beginning like the mouths and the breathing but in almost that twisted same way that You see it in like the Umbrella Academy. The authority figures are corrupted and duplicitous and easily mimicked by the evil. This confidence, this air of menace can be applied so easily to the people who ostensibly are supposed to keep us safe. Or at least those that a lot of, and I'm going to say this a lot because this is a very racially charged subject, but white people feel like cops are going to protect them.
0: I think one of the most telling passages in here is where New York comments on a pair of heavily armed and armored police officers standing outside the subway that they are there to look powerful and protect the tourists from New York. They're not there to protect the city. They're there to protect tourists. Tourists here are used pejoratively. They're out-of-towners. They're the people who don't have any stake in the livelihood of the city or its well-being.
1: Who are coming to take advantage of all of the things, all of these myths and legends almost that they have been told of what New York has to offer. They're almost like a parasite,
0: Yeah, we're going to see a lot of examples of parasitism here. (laughs) So as he's being pursued, we also see New York awaken, truly come alive as an entire city. We see him start to step into his power and fight off the invaders.
1: He can feel the city being born, and he can also feel the corruption Of what is essentially an eldritch horror being tentacles, little white tendrils infecting tourists and residents and the land itself. But the first wrongness, almost like this entity is wearing these cops as like Edgar suits, is these two out-of-place-ish people who are almost one being. The tendrils, the tentacles, almost become this parasite antenna. There's a type of ant that infects larger ants with a parasite that just eats away at their brain and then kind of grows out of their head. And that's the way that these controlling tendrils are described as taking over the people that they infect.
0: You're talking about cordyceps? Maybe. Yeah, it's like a fungal parasite. It takes over ants, and then the ants spread the parasite to other ants and wasps. And Oh yeah, it's creepy.
1: Yeah, so that's the real life thing. It's been used in other media, like Limbo, the game. That's really where I associate it with, because you have to try to play a character who has a growth coming out of his face and he's just not going to do what you ask because he's being controlled by the parasite.
0: Cordyceps are also the central concept behind the clickers in Last of Us.
1: I would like to contrast this story a little bit with our last interlude, which was Erin Morgenstern's The Starless Sea. She's a white author and Kay Jemison is black. They have vastly different experiences as people just growing up and living the protagonist of the starless sea is young black queer and goes to new york as a bit of an outsider and then there's this magical realism and portal fantasy that happens but the character himself other than having a mom who is creole really could have any race, gender, identity, anything. Any person could be plugged in as that protagonist. He's more of a cipher. He's not really fleshed out in a way that an author's experience can color the portrayal.
0: I would also say that Morgan Stern's conception of New York is a lot cuddlier than Jemison's. While Jemison's version of New York is definitely loud and vibrant and has warmth to it, and there are moments of genuine human compassion, it's tempered with this edge. All of the characters have messy parts to them, just as the city does. There are these elements to the city that are uncomfortable, that are sometimes downright harmful, And Jemison gives us a far more ambiguous portrayal of this city and of its characters. They're round. They contain multitudes. When I say ambiguous, I'm talking about in the moral sense. She gives it room to be messy and complicated and morally ambiguous in a way that really it isn't for Morgenstern. Morgenstern treats the city as just another set piece. It's like a theater stage, whereas... In this book, New York City itself is a character. More accurately, six of them. And well, seven if you count Jersey City. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: One thing I do want to point out is there is a landmark that is shared between here and the Starless Sea. And that is the New York Public Library.
0: I love how New York describes libraries as sanctuaries. These are places where you can be safe. You can, provided you obey a few simple rules, stay as long as you like and be safe from the police, from the elements, and just generally be warm.
1: Except this library is not exactly that.
0: But you can still read.
1: But he talks about the lions in front of the library, which are things that Zachary Ezra Rollins also spoke about.
0: Yeah, New York takes his place in front of fortitude rather than patience because he knows what he's about. He's determined, he's hungry, he will do whatever he can to survive, to get by, but he's not very patient.
1: He's trying very hard to just scarf down the last of his food that Sao Paulo bought him, and that is when the cop monstrosity starts chasing him. And the chase scene is evocative and shows you some of the emerging powers that New York, the Avatar, is pulling from New York, the city.
0: So we see New York lure the cop monstrosity, or the mega cop, as we'll call it, just for ease, out onto rushing traffic on the FDR Drive, which is like five lanes in each direction.
1: And... We get what is essentially a real life version of Frogger, where New York is, by the skin of his teeth, able to get across all the lanes of traffic. And it's a frantic and frenetic description of every car, every semi, everything that could possibly just squish him like a bug. And the whole point of this is because he knows the city. He knows this artery into and out of this area. He can subtly affect it so that he does not die. And he's enticing the mega cop to follow him. And that both works in his favor and kind of dooms the city a little bit.
0: It's a Pyrrhic victory.
1: Because the cop, of course, gets splatted everywhere. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't die. It gets ground into the pavement. And New York blacks out and wakes up in Central Park.
0: And as he comes awake, he also finds himself essentially in the center of the city, the center of his power. And this is where he finally wakes up, like truly wakes up alive. And he finds himself aware of every being within the bounds of the city. He feels every person's hunger, their panic, their drives, every emotion, all of them. He's alive and experiencing all of them at the same time.
1: Their joy, their elation. And the city is born.
0: So as he comes alive, he sees a great sort of sea monster coming out of the East River, attacking him. And so he fights back as the city, which is almost like a giant mecca. You know, the bridges are arms and he's got streets for legs and it's kind of weird and everything.
1: Sounds like a transformer.
0: A little bit. And he's able to beat the thing down and he is absolutely feeling it, but not before he takes a wound and feels his powers splintering. As he encounters Sao Paulo, who is congratulating him on his birth, he realizes that his power has been split in five directions. And he gets teleported to some unknown place to protect himself until he can essentially recover those splinters of his power and be born anew. So then we have an interruption where we get Sao Paulo's perspective on all this. So he recognizes that, essentially, if New York is a mecca, it's a Voltron. So it's not piloted by one, but by five. And those five have to be reunited.
1: Six. There's six. I'm going to reiterate yeah. that there are six, because there are five boroughs plus New York.
0: The six of them have to be reunited to be able to function fully. On their own, they will be cut off and destroyed by the adversary. So what he needs to do is find these five boroughs and then reunite them with the primary avatar of New York.
1: Which means he also kinda now needs to find the primary avatar of New York because that kid's disappeared.
0: We don't know where to.
1: What I do like about the characterization of New York, the character, he's not just said to be queer, he's shown to be queer. He's also shown to be homeless and desperate His mindset is, if I do sexual favors for Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo will feel obligated to care for me, at least monetarily and shelter-wise and possibly food-wise, so that I can take advantage of his kindness and then show him some form of kindness back. But it's all in this very transactional way and the only thing that New York has to give back the Avatar, has to give back is sexual favors. But it's still empowering. It's not unwilling.
0: We get the sense that New York has made all of his decisions consciously. He knows exactly who he is. He knows what he wants. And he also, I hesitate to describe him as homeless because his home is New York City.
1: Houseless. He's, He's just houseless. houseless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think that's a better description than homeless. He doesn't have like a permanent shelter that is his, but the entire city is his home.
1: But what I also appreciate is that there is intersectionality here. We don't just have a black character. We have a black gay character who embodies all of his multitudes.
0: And he represents all of New York City and all of its multitudes. From the least powerful to the most powerful, he embodies all of them from the kindest to the cruelest. He is in all of them. So let's dive into chapter one now. So this is where we meet our first burrow. This is entitled Starting with Manhattan and the Battle of FDR Drive.
1: Not to put too fine a point on it.
0: Not to put too fine a point on it, indeed. So we first meet Manhattan, or Manny, as he also refers to himself when he's among normals, arriving on a train from the countryside. He is not from New York.
1: He seems to be from the Midwest, but only insofar as his failed memory kind of pinpoints his accent to the Midwest.
0: This also ties into something that we see in the opening quote of the book from Thomas Wolfe. One belongs to New York instantly. One belongs to it as much in five minutes as in five years. So Manny represents that sense that New York takes in all kinds and anyone can be a New Yorker. Anyone who's going to the city to make their life, to make their way, it's full of possibilities. However, being an avatar is just so huge that it overwrites every part of Manny's memory that isn't immediately necessary to the business of being an avatar. So he doesn't know his name He doesn't really know where he's from. He doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't know where he's supposed to go next. He is just completely at the mercy of the city.
1: He's kind of pure id.
0: Yeah, he's trying to survive. He is rough around the edges. What we also see here is the positive side of New York.
1: Manny when he is overtaken by the sheer power of becoming an avatar of Manhattan, kind of rockets between the real world and the overlapped world. The possibilities and the devastation that could be if everything was overtaken by the evil. And he kind of blacks out.
0: Yeah, and it's terrifying for him. He's disoriented, he's got no memory, and he's worried that this is the sign of a psychotic break. And he's worried that someone will commit him because he knows that New York City has some very strong involuntary commitment laws that could totally wreck his day. Fortunately, the people he encounters, the first thing they do are offer him water, and then they offer him a snack because they worry that maybe he's got low blood sugar.
1: It is also notable that the people who stop to help him are not white. That's important.
0: The other thing that we see in this opening bit is when Manny first emerges from the station out into the world, how he experiences the various businesses that surround him. So when he sees things like a TGI Fridays or a Macy's or any of the other national chains, he kind of recoils a bit. But when he sees local mom and pop vape shops or shoe repair places or, you know, the local businesses, they don't bother him as much. It's that sense that there's something wrong with these nationalized global homogenous brands that are sort of sucking the life out of the city.
1: One thing I'd like to bring up is that I don't actually have any real life experience of New York, like none. But what I do have is a YouTube channel that I have watched off and on that is a real estate broker that rents out apartments throughout New York. And he has that same disdain for things like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and all of the big box places like Target and Old Navy and all of these places again with that whole idea of infecting and overtaking the culture and gentrifying this place of beauty, this cultural landmark, this unique space that has its own identity.
0: The other big thing that we get here is an experience of the New York City cab ride. I want to talk a little bit about this because I have some personal experience with it. Not quite exactly like this.
1: No, because I doubt that you wound up borrowing an umbrella from an Indian woman and using it to essentially play racquetball with a bunch of tentacle monsters on the FDR, but...
0: Like, the experience of getting into a cab in New York City is really unique. So, first, there is the greeting. There is the where to. I love how he describes it as a ritualized thing. First, there's the greeting. You introduce yourself by saying where you're going. And then from there, you get a little bit of dickering over the price or how fast they can get you there. And then once you've sealed that agreement, there's this blood pact that has been signed. And at that point, the driver agrees that they will get you there for the agreed price as fast as humanly possible. And at that point, little things like traffic regulations or stoplights or, you know, just the normal mortal concerns become simple guidelines because the cabbie is not bound by them. <laughs> I remember just speed limits didn't matter to the cabbies. Like they would go as fast as they could. They were flooring it to get you to your spot to earn their fare so they could get onto the next one. There was also something really interesting because there was this rivalry between the drivers of yellow cabs versus the drivers of the town cars. This was back before Uber had really taken over the on-demand car ride thing. So you had cabbies who paid thousands of dollars to have a license to drive a cab in the city, and they were working to pay that off. And then you had town cars, which were basically black limos. And... They both ran a lot of the same routes, but they were definitely for different classes of people. And the drivers knew it. I remember we'd be sitting at a stoplight and there'd be a town car pulled up next to my cab. And I just remember the driver looking over and like his nostrils flaring in disgust as he saw his nemesis, the town car, next to him. And as soon as the light turned green, he just was flooring it, just trying to burn this guy off the gate. Like it was out of a Fast and the Furious movie. Yeah, like he was weaving in and out of lanes, just trying to block this guy off. It was kind of terrifying. And at the same time, I'm like, well, this guy's a professional. He's probably done this a lot. This is like a Tuesday for him.
1: Was it a Tuesday?
0: It was a Wednesday.
1: (laughs) One thing that I want to do to rewind a little bit. There are a few other interactions that Manny has. First of all, when he at random notices his name, he knows enough to not call himself Manhattan because he's already feeling like he's already appearing nuts. And he knows enough not to draw that attention. So he calls himself Manny, which works with his Generic all American boy, non white version, nicely nondescript self. But he also then has a conversation with bike rental employees, one of whom is like, Okay, dude, don't vomit anywhere near me. Seriously, don't scare away my tourists. I need them to pay me. And you look like scary New York. No one wants to come and rent a bike for me if I'm hanging around scary New York. And then there's a woman that has more compassion, but at the same time also has the need to rent these bikes out and is trying gently to get Manny to go the fork away.
0: I'm sorry we don't rent to people who appear to be under the influence.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like he's not under the influence of any drugs. He is being violently whipped between realities.
0: And what's interesting is while the more aggressive guy who's grabbing his nutsack and basically just being kind of a jerk, and then we have this other lady who appears kinder and more compassionate, but she's actually just as much of a jerk and just as profit motivated as the guy, it's just that she hides it better. And so there's something refreshingly honest about the one guy. So Manny feels himself called.
1: Don't say feels himself right after that, (laughs) Zach.
0: Okay, that's one (laughs) one for the outtakes. So as all of this is going on, Manny finds himself being called somewhere in the direction of FDR Drive, which as we will recall from the prologue is where the mega cop got smashed.
1: And to be clear... When you were talking about the cab ride, that ties into what happens next, where he gets into what is essentially a novelty cab that is meant as a picture prop for weddings and prompts.
0: Yeah, it's the old school checker cab.
1: Whose driver is like, what the fork, dude, get out of my car. And... He's able to pull on all of the power and persuasion of Manhattan, the quintessential tourist destination of New York, all of the smooth-talking business people, and all of the fast-talking cabbies, and all of the rituals and all of the things that are now something he embodies, to persuade the driver that A, he is not a serial killer, and B, to... Act like an actual cabbie for him.
0: I believe the expression here that he uses money talks and bullshirt walks. Yeah, he basically gives her
1: a stack of bills. A few stacks of bills. Like, the dude is flush. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't know how much is in his bank accounts. He doesn't know anything about his past. He's just hoping that he has enough to make it through. And he's probably effing up his future.
0: Quite probably, because, yeah, he's got to pay rent in the future. We don't know what he's going to be doing for work.
1: He doesn't either. He knows he's got to go to grad school. That ain't cheap. No, nor profitable. Not right away. Yeah. But detour onto the FDR drive, where we get another wonderful action piece. And I can see it in my head. Traffic stopped, going at a snail's pace. Tires just rolling over this mass of wriggling white tendrils stuffed into the pavement. And the traffic is actually getting heavier and heavier because another bridge within New York was destroyed by the kaiju fight that the Avatar of New York had with the enemy. And we've got this girl who is not a cabbie acting as his chauffeur and then his accomplice in this whole endeavor of trying to find a way to kill sort of, or at least uproot the main source of evil that is further infecting the city.
0: So I love how like, at a certain point. He just says, okay, put out the hazard flashers or the flares or whatever, pull over, I got a plan. Sort of. Okay, he's got maybe one twelfth of a plan.
1: To borrow from Guardians of the Galaxy?
0: Yep. So he ends up grabbing an umbrella for reasons that even he doesn't truly
1: understand. From somebody else's car?
0: And I love that... The person who owns the umbrella, her response is, I mostly just use it to hit people.
1: (laughs) That and also, I really don't care that much about it. It's not mine. It's my sister's.
0: So he takes this umbrella and then he plants himself on top of the cab and asks the cabbie to drive at the source of the tendrils.
1: The not cabbie.
0: Fine. The not cabbie. Her name's Madison, by the way.
1: Named after the street that the fertility clinic that her moms went to, to find the sperm donor (laughs) was on handy but also very ingrained into the city
0: and it's also notable that madison is able to see these tendrils that nobody else seems to be able to see and this is also what gets her to go along with this otherwise insane plan
1: basically like what the fork that's really weird you're really weird Did the two weird just cancel each other out? What?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's more a case of, okay, well, if I'm going crazy, you are too, and at least you're an accomplice, so okay, let's do it.
1: And it also is a testament to how much power Manhattan has.
0: He is a smooth talker. So his plan starts with him trying to almost joust with the tentacle thing. But then he realizes that's not quite right. So then he opens the umbrella up and then points it at the tentacles, but that's not working. And then he raises it like he's trying to keep himself dry, which suddenly creates this bubble over the car and turns it into essentially an energy missile.
1: Almost also like a deflector shield. Then he remembers the words of the person who didn't object to him taking it. I just like to hit people with it. And so he does. Except it's not people.
0: It's just a tower of tendrils.
1: Eldritch horror style. (laughs) Whoa! Are there any other themes or other things you want to touch on within Manhattan's Awakening?
0: I think the big thing is the contrast between tourist and New Yorker. We see tourists referred to with disdain. They're treated as these parasitic organisms.
1: Tourist is a pejorative.
0: Yeah. I'm reminded of Joe Cocker from Pulp talking about how everybody hates a tourist. And this definitely has that feel to it. Tourists are the people who want to go to New York City, but want to have the same taste that they see in their suburban Midwest home. So they go to Times Square, and they visit the TGI Fridays. Or to get real New York pizza, they go to Sbarro. Ugh.
1: Really? Like, food court pizza? No. Please tell me that when you were visiting New York, that wasn't your plan. It
0: was not, and I did not. I ate better than that. Things that I did in New York. I got oysters at Grand Central Station at the recommendation of my aunt. (laughs) And... I did Korean food. I went to a small Mexican place. Yeah, I tried to avoid the chain restaurants because I could
2: have that at home.
1: One thing, though, that is notable about you is that I have never once felt like you were going to throw your nose up at pretty much any smaller, unique restaurant. Any different cultural food than TGI Fridays. like. One of the first places that we went together with a group of friends was an Eritrean place. And I'd never had Eritrean food and it was wonderful. And I'd since found a place that was serving that type of food out of a food truck, mostly because you opened my eyes to being okay with things that weren't the type of fare that I normally found in Spokane.
0: These are the tastes that people love. These are their tastes of home. And, you know, there's going to be something unique to that that you just simply wouldn't get elsewhere.
1: Like, you're the reason that I first tried Korean food. You're the reason I first tried Indian, Thai. I mean, you name it. We regularly eat at a, I don't know how authentic, but Hawaiian place. We've made a habit of going to our local Asian grocery stores and getting lunch items from their deli counter because, oh my goodness, is the food there just a ton better than getting a random sandwich at Albertson's?
0: Yeah, pretty much. The thing that we really get driven home here is that homogeneity is the enemy. Like I'm not saying that it's bad to ever eat Starbucks or to go to a chain restaurant, but what I am saying is that If that is the extent of your adventurousness, you're missing out. Yeah, I'm not gonna be some sort of hypocrite because I go to chain restaurants every now and then. We get Starbucks for breakfast every week just because it's something that we do, but that's not the extent of where we go. So wherever you live, look for those little small holes in the wall. They may not look like much. They may be a little less slick, They may take a little longer, they may not have everything as consistent as you're used to, but it's in those inconsistencies that you can discover the real gems. This brings us to Chapter 2, Showdown in the Last Forest.
1: The chapter opens up, Manny has figured out from an address that is saved in his phone, because apparently he is the type of person who obsessively keeps all of this stuff and has a sticky note to himself that is like new address and then exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. He seems very, very excited about the whole idea of moving to New York and getting to live on his own and not have to be beholden to other people, all this stuff that moving to New York will bring to people who have this romanticized version in their head. And yeah, he's going to go to school here which means that he won't have time to do all of the things that are iconic and, frankly, tourist traps. But he's very clearly excited for this chapter of his life, even if he doesn't remember it.
0: So his new apartment is in Inwood, which is sort of on the north end of Manhattan, also in the absolute wrong direction from FDR.
1: Right. He took the long way around. But Madison is willing to actually take him home.
0: And she also offers to take him home, if you know what I mean.
1: I can't do the wolf whistle, but if I could, I would. Once he
0: arrives at his apartment, Manny meets his new roommate, Belle Nguyen, who is a PhD candidate in political theory at Columbia.
1: Just like Manny. Bell is also, though, just a little bit shaky around Manny. For good reason. But notably, when Manny is like, so you can call me Manny. (laughs) And there's no mention of his former identity at all. It's very indicative of how, especially trans people, but a lot of people change their names. A lot of queer people change their names. I have changed my name. And a former identity or identifier is considered to be a dead name. And it is one that shouldn't be used to address the person any longer. And Belle is trans. Belle respects Manny's choice to be known by Manny and doesn't push it.
0: As long as the check clears, he's fine.
1: Also notable, there's a little bit of, oh, you forgot that I'm trans. Trans. Truth be known, when you first found out, I was a little worried about you. You seem to have an edge. Which means I am super glad that Manny kind of forgot everything about himself. Because I really wouldn't want him to hurt another person, much less his roommate, who seems like a very wonderful bloke.
0: Bell is a great character. He's not in it for very long, but he makes a great sidekick for Manny <laughs> during their interactions. They have an easy camaraderie with one another once they get over some of those initial jitters. And we also do discover that, yeah, Manny's past was not just all sunshine and rainbows. Like, he clearly did things that he was not happy about.
1: Like He knows how to be violent effectively.
0: He's been in fights and he has not always been in fights for good reasons, we get the impression.
1: I get the impression that he has been abusive, that he has been violent based on arguments around race, gender, any other number of things. There's a little bit of potential that he is closeted queer and there is a almost shorthand being played here of like when you're closeted and there are two ways that you can express your roiling emotions one of those is to be violent inward and to yourself and one of them is to be defensively violent outward to anyone that would question you or threaten you
0: there's a part of him that's kind of glad for his amnesia Manny sees this as a way for him to be someone that he wants to be. And I think this is also playing on that sort of prototypical New York story of you move from somewhere else to be someone new, to be the version of yourself you've always wanted to be. And I think there's a little bit of that here for him as well. New York represents an escape for Manny. And the amnesia lets him do that literally. He doesn't have to think about the person he was. And he's content to not think about the person he was. Of course, that edge that he's got to him is a crucial part of who he is now.
1: He's instinctually following that. So I know that we've talked about my anxiety before on the podcast. And something that you say to me is that the reason that you are understanding and compassionate towards me when I am in a state of high anxiety and lashing out is because you understand that if I could choose to be a different way, I would be a different way. But some of those things are so ingrained and chemically bound to the way that I naturally react in the moment that even as I know that I don't want to be that way, I can't necessarily stop myself Before it happens, and I have to apologize afterward for letting that bit of control slip or making a choice that is against the ones that I consciously want to make. Yeah. And so I think in this case, Manny isn't consciously making these choices, but he knows how to do them. And that's his first reaction based on who he is.
0: And it's also an element of who Manhattan as a borough is as well. So we'll get to that. So one of the ways that we first discover sort of this dark side of Manny and Manhattan is when Belle and Manny go for a walk in this forest park, which is sort of this enchanted forest in the middle of the city, which I think is kind of a really awesome setting. This oasis of calm and nature in this otherwise manmade environment.
1: Concrete jungle.
0: There is a rock in the middle of the park that marks where Peter Minuit purchased the island of Manhattan from the Lenape Indians for a collection of trinkets that amounted to about 60 guilders in total value. Not much.
1: He essentially stole the land.
0: Yeah. It was a real estate swindle. That's the foundation that Manhattan and Manny was built on. So while they're in the park, they get accosted by a woman who begins filming them on a smartphone.
1: A white woman. We have to point this out.
0: Yeah. This is someone who accuses them of being perverts, even though they are literally just going for a hike.
1: They're just in the park. They're taking advantage of the park. There is an actual couple actually forking. like 15 feet away, but they're presumably white. So, eh, like living out their best 1st of May. But the woman is approaching them with a cell phone, pointed up, recording them, ostensibly doing nothing, accusing them of being drug dealers, accusing them of being perverts, accusing them of having sex in public, what the hell? Essentially being a Karen before being a Karen was in the vernacular.
0: Yeah, this incident was inspired by a real life incident in 2020 where a black man was bird watching in Central Park and a white woman saw him doing this and called the cops on him because she assumed he was loitering with intent to assault and mug people.
1: Because he had what? binoculars because he was bird watching
0: because he was black
1: i no no no. I, i'm aware of the real reason yeah. i'm wondering what the excuse that the woman tried to give to the cops was
0: as i recall she didn't really
1: try that hard honestly just let people live their lives damn it if you follow us on twitter you will probably know that I have misophonia, which is literal hatred of noise. And we have a landscaping crew that comes out on Tuesdays and uses a leaf blower a lot of times on very wet pavement on barely existing leaves. And that goes on for like an hour every single morning that they're here. And I complain about it. But I have seen a video of someone going up to a landscaper that was ostensibly hired by the neighborhood, not this one, but a different neighborhood, and screaming at them to turn off their freaking leaf blower. And that person, that person's a Karen. I will not do that to the person who was employed and is being paid to do this by our HOA that I have nothing to do with because we rent. I will just point out the fact that leaf blowers are absolutely horrible for the environment and sit here and grumble on Twitter. There's a difference. Don't go up and accost people. Seriously. If you want to espouse your complaints on what is essentially screaming into a void that is Twitter, sure, but don't treat other people that way.
0: Well, and especially, like, in this case, Belle and Manny are doing absolutely nothing to cause any problem. There is no rational reason why anyone would have a problem with them having this walk. They are not hurting anyone. They are not making any extra noise. They are not disrupting anyone. All they are doing is just being someone that this person doesn't want to see.
1: Right, because we've got someone who is... British-Asian, and someone who is generic all-American boy, non-white edition, in the same vicinity.
0: Now, as bad as that may be, there is something more sinister going on, because Manny is able to see that this woman has an antenna sprouting from her head.
1: Little white tendril.
0: And he realizes that this is a manifestation of the enemy. And as soon as he calls her out on this... She drops the disguise.
1: In a very dramatic fashion because she turns into literally a white woman. Like the color bleaches from the woman's hair and the skin turns even paler. The outfit turns white. Everything. That poor dog that the previous woman actually had with her. Oh my goodness. Poor puppy must be so confused.
0: And or infected. Here we get really the first chance for the adversary to speak. So part of the problem is that she is so homogenous that she can't really tell the difference between individuals. Like it's not like there's object permanence for her. She initially mistakes Belle for Sao Paulo and Manny for New York.
1: Right, because everyone who is black is the same, and everyone who is brown is the same.
0: And all of New York is the same.
1: And every city with any culture or character is the same.
0: Because as far as she's concerned, they are. They're just another thing for her to conquer, to take over.
1: What I do find interesting is that Belle is able to see a lot of what is happening And it makes me wonder if he may have had something to do with the city of London.
0: It's possible. We know that he's got a South London accent when he gets riled up.
1: And that it turns back to generic British.
0: I believe received pronunciation is the one.
1: When he is no longer riled up.
0: So this also leads to, as they're watching, Manny recognizes this. Park is being overtaken by these little tendrils shooting up out of the
1: ground. And it occurs to him that every car that rolled over the dying, splintering tendrils picked a little bit of contamination up.
0: And spread it. He realizes that this is not going to be an easy thing. He won a battle, but the overall conflict is still very much in play.
1: And not for nothing, but it is interesting timing for me that this came out right as all of the lockdowns were trying to be implemented all over the world for the pandemic, because it shows that once something is contaminated, the impossibility of being able to contain it.
0: As all this is happening, he's just trying to figure out what's he supposed to do? What's the force leading him to do, right?
1: what is the right way to overcome this puzzle in this really forked up video game that is now his life?
0: It's like he's in the worst point and click adventure. Use umbrella.
1: (laughs) Rubber chicken and pulley.
0: Yeah. And so he ends up realizing as he retreats to the rock that this is Manhattan where money talks and bullshit walks. So that means that If he can buy land, he can reclaim it.
1: And so he starts just hucking money at the ground.
0: Which the tendrils seem to recoil from. Unfortunately, Manhattan real estate prices are ridiculous. And so the most that he can get is when he throws his credit card at him and gets something about the size of a Toyota Corolla. (laughs) And this is when we meet our second Burroughs' avatar which is brooklyn so brooklyn comes in making a grand entrance holding her cell phone over her head and playing a song and with each beat on the song it seems to damage the tendrils and force them away
1: i gotta say the thing about the song is that it is very tied to the woman who is singing it I'm not able to easily find the name of the song. I don't know what it is off the top of my head if it's a real song or not.
0: I don't think it is. It's a bit of 80s and 90s early hip hop. uses a lot of antiquated sampling techniques and electronic drums and record scratches and things like that that just aren't really used today.
1: But it is definitely part of the New York culture, at least when it comes to Brooklyn. And because she is so indelibly herself, she is able to force away these tendrils of hate.
0: And even when they touch her, those tendrils just recoil and burn up. Brooklyn is powerful. She's got a presence to her. And she's able to drive off the infection, even from the woman, Unfortunately, the woman is still a jerk, even without extra dimensional control. And so Manny takes a bit of a direct route here and actually goes and physically accosts her and takes her phone. And he's vaguely horrified that he knows how to do this.
1: He then goes through, finds her name on her social media, and threatens her physically and lives up to all of the stereotypes that she has in her head about black men
0: and part of this is referring to the dark side of manhattan that it is a place where the powerful use their power to get what they want sometimes that's for good sometimes for ill but it is always an exercise of power over another person in this case manny is using that to protect himself and his friends. But that's not always the case. And when you see someone do that, it changes how you see them. It certainly changes how Bell sees him.
1: Gives him back the impression that he originally got through the Skype meeting that they had before becoming roommates. Bell really didn't have much of a choice. Kind of had to take what he could get. And hopefully Manny was going to be respectful enough and kind enough and not scary enough where Bell would survive.
0: Yeah, in this case, we recognize that Manny is used to wielding power and getting what he wants. He will use the carrot or the stick to get what he wants. We've seen him use the carrot before when he has been offering money to get what he wants. Now we see him using physical force and intimidation to get what he wants.
1: He knows that the woman's already called the police and he's doing everything that he thinks that he can in order to threaten her off of that path and to get her to leave them alone. She basically craps her pants and they leave saying, I hope we never see you ever again. And they again go the long way around because just in case there happen to be cops coming, They want to be scarce.
0: It's also here that with the woman gone, Manny and Brooklyn get to actually size each other up. And we learn a little bit about Brooklyn. She is a city councilwoman. Her name is actually Brooklyn. But in a past life, she was known as MC Free, and she was an early hip-hop pioneer. She was one of the first successful female MCs during the 80s. So that song was her song. So this is a song that represents Brooklyn herself. It's not just any song. It is something unique. It represents her own love letter to the city. That's what gives it its power over this homogenizing force of the enemy. But all that said, Brooklyn's not exactly thrilled to be going on some grand chase here.
1: Some grand adventure.
0: She's initially resistant to the call until the two of them flip into the other world.
1: And see all the destruction and all of the devastation that is New York's future if they don't uproot the evil.
0: And they also hear a cry for help from the Avatar of Queens. And so that means that they're going to have to try and find their way out there, probably by bus. And just hope that the force leads him to the right place.
1: I mean, it worked for Brooklyn. It did. It drew her directly to Manhattan. And this is also where we leave Belle. Because Belle doesn't need to be dragged along on a supernatural journey that he can't really affect.
0: He's not equipped
1: for this. And May's like, no offense, man. And he's like, dude, I want none of this. Leave me the fork out of it. And with that, let's go ahead and just wrap up and make sure that we have covered everything that we meant to cover. One thing I do want to mention before we go much further is that I realize that the two of us with our rather pale skin tone can't accurately portray the feelings and the emotions wrapped up in an experience of someone who is not the color of a sheet of paper.
0: Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I wasn't really afraid of police because for me, they were never a threat. There was never this idea that if the police looked at me, they would see a criminal. Because I had done nothing wrong, they would assume that I had done nothing wrong. It wasn't until I had friends who had different skin colors for whom that was not the case who had experiences where police assumed guilt on their part just by looking at them, that I started to realize that my experience with the police was completely different. Like that whole idea that the honest person has nothing to fear from the police is only true if you belong to the dominant cultural group. The police in America do not exist to protect the community, they exist to protect the power structures that are already in place and the comfort of the people who benefit from those.
1: And that's something that we can look at and understand intellectually. And that's the police as a system, the law enforcement system, not necessarily individual police officers. And we're going to leave it at that. The system as a whole is designed around protecting the interests of the dominant subculture, I guess. So if you are a deviant off of that, if you are houseless, if you are queer, if you are black or brown, if you are any other subgroup besides cis, straight, white, probably male then your power diminishes with every checkbox that you uncheck.
0: Again, it's worth noting that yes, there are individual police officers who, if you were to ask them, they would never do anything to harm someone or discriminate. But the problem is that the system does not stop anyone who wants to use their power, the power of their badge to reinforce stereotypes, to discriminate, to hurt people, The system is protecting them, and insofar as it protects them, it makes every part of it complicit.
1: The next thing is that we do not have a lot of experience with New York directly.
0: Correct. Of the two of us, I have spent the most time there, which is to say a couple days.
1: And so we'd actually like to hear from people who have more personal stories of New York, who have actual experience there, who have lived there. We'd love to hear any sort of good or bad anecdotes or something that you'd like to share with the rest of the audience of the podcast that ties somewhere into the story of the city we became.
0: Yeah. So if you can email us at waystonepod at gmail.com We'll go ahead and collect that. You can also reach out to us directly on our Discord server. The link to that will be in the show description. You can also DM it to us on Twitter at WaystonePod.
1: Or Facebook at Tales from the Waystone. Seriously, we're everywhere. I will say, however, that the thing I'm least likely to check is the email.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so probably Discord or Twitter is most reliable.
1: Or Instagram. Although Instagram has a habit of showing me things like many, 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 many weeks after it was sent to me. (laughs) It's nuts. Anyway, but back to the story. Is there any other thing that you would like to touch on that you noticed that you'd like to do a little more in-depth study?
0: I think we're at a good spot here for the section that we've discussed today There's some stuff that I'll be coming back to, though, once we get into our discussions of Bronca, particularly as they pertain to the magical realist tradition. So stick a
2: pin in that.
1: Okay. I think for the most part, we've got everything that I wanted to cover covered as well. And so it is time to talk about our recommended thing of the week. And so I was going to recommend a certain thing which I will probably recommend in episode three of our interlude, which by the way is a six part interlude if we didn't say that. And I'm going to recommend the show Severance because it's not very often that we go back and rewatch an entire show. We've done it twice recently and that's Ted Lasso and now also Severance. So when I was much too young to actually appreciate it and much too young to probably watch it and not be a little bit messed up by watching it. I really liked the movie The Game with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn and it kind of started me on this love affair of I really like these things that are on the surface very mundane but you dig just a little bit into it and there is a whole world of forked up that is just underneath that surface. And Severance, I think is very well paced. I think that it starts off, off, and does a very good job of just escalating every episode. It keeps the mystery going. And it's a tightly written story. And it is a logical progression on the part of the main characters from accepting what's happening to questioning what's happening to trying to change what's happening and there's enough of just this menace just floating under the surface and it makes you want to know what in the ever loving hell is going on and it leaves you in a place that has some answers And does a good job on the cliffhanger. And thank the gods that it's already been announced that there's more seasons coming. Because if there weren't I'd probably have to throw my phone through a plate glass window or something. Because
0: I'm glad you haven't.
1: I am too. Don't want to go replacing that. But (laughs) if you don't know, it's on Apple TV. So if you get a new Apple device anytime. Just binge the heck out of it, seriously, because you get Apple TV for free for a little bit. And Adam Scott plays a person who has chosen to go through what is called the severance procedure and works for a big company that is nondescript. He doesn't even know what he's doing. And so the way that this works is that at home, he gets to enjoy his life. And he doesn't have to experience work as a thing. And then he goes down an elevator and turns into his work persona. And his work persona does all the work and does all of the mundane crap that he gets paid for that has no seeming purpose or explanation. But he doesn't have to worry about experiencing it in his real day-to-day life.
0: It's also worth noting that his work persona has no memory of his home persona. It plays on the idea that there's a different version of ourselves that we have to be when we're at work versus at home. I've seen this, I've been this, and I do this to this very day. There's some stuff that I have to leave at home. And this takes that literally.
1: And it's so weird how the pandemic kind of made it so that everyone's work and home life kind of had to bleed together, especially if you had to work from home because then there's no separation there's almost like that commute time would be like the elevator ride in this show where you could just kind of let go of some of it but in this case it's literally like day and night there is no recall between the two personas of the other person's life and they're almost separate people but there is also this weird mystery of what is going on with the large company that employs him. What kind of forgery is going on? And it's creepy and strange. And there's so little in the way of explanation. But the characters are so compelling. And this mystery just pulls you in. It's like the beginning of Lost when Lost was good.
0: Yeah. That's actually the best comparison I could see as well, because you also have a large reliance on these kind of now archaic mid-century technologies. Like, nobody drives a car newer than the mid-90s, for one thing.
1: But they have cell phones that make it very obvious that they are in this current time frame.
0: Right, people use contemporary smartphones, but they also use flip phones. While they're on the severed floor, You know, obviously they don't have any of their normal connected devices or anything like that.
1: But they use computers that look vaguely like the ones that were in my library up until like the mid 2000s.
0: Yeah, these are 1980s computers using like these massive keyboards and trackball setups, you know, with maybe a 16 bit display. They're using archaic technologies like, when they listen to music, they're listening to vinyl records.
1: Which have made a comeback.
0: Right. But there's sort of this weird retro feel to it all that makes it hard to place. It gives it sort of an uncanny feel, and it really leans into that vibe, I think. Yeah, definitely Severance. It's a good one.
1: And now, to change things up a little bit, we didn't explain this at the beginning. Sorry. Sorry. It's summer vacation. We're not going to do nearly as much work on this as we normally would. So no interesting facts this time around. But Will does have a quote from the book. We are forgoing the seven words conceit because this isn't Patrick Rothfuss. And sometimes a more verbose quote is also good.
0: So this is a quote from the prologue of the book, and it just really stuck to me. It just hit me and I couldn't stop thinking about it. What good does it do to be valuable if no one values you? And I think this really hits at this disconnect between this idea of intrinsic worth of all human beings and the fact that for a lot of people, even as we might recognize our own intrinsic worth, if nobody acknowledges that, if nobody treats us with that, doesn't do us a whole lot of good, we still feel starved we still feel cut off we still feel taken advantage of regardless of what anyone might say about our intrinsic worth that we still do have to exist in relation to other people and that we do need to have a connection to them to be valued by another human being is something that we all need even people who say that they don't care what other people think about them we all technically do care about what some people think about us And we should. That's how we are able to realize whatever value we may have.
1: It's also how we understand that other humans are other humans.
0: Exactly. So that's just something to think about.
1: If other people stop having value, then you can treat them in any way, shape, or form that you would treat an object. And if that object has no value to you, then you can break it without remorse.
0: It's one thing to recognize that people have value intrinsically, and it's a completely different thing to treat them that way.
1: Or to recognize that a person has that value. There is a difference between people as a general concept and an individual.
0: Exactly. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me.
1: Thank you for potting with me.
0: And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone, The Interlude We Became. Join us next week on The Interlude We Became for episode two, as we're going to be discussing chapters three, second interruption, and then chapters four and five. We hope that you enjoy that. Again, send us your New York stories. If you want to include them, we'll discuss them on the sixth and final episode.
1: Just let us know if you actually want us to include them and let us know if you want us to include your name.
0: In the meantime, we'd like to thank Shawnee Jang for our theme music.
1: And N.K. Jemison for writing not just this wonderful story, but a lot of wonderful stories that we have enjoyed reading over the past year.
0: Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough.
1: And audio production and editing and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: If you'd like to help support us and you have the means to do so, please consider contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod. We've got all sorts of goodies there, including some bonus pods, as well as artwork and other fun stuff and early access.
1: We just, just, just put out the second half of our coverage of the second book of the Sandman series, The Doll's House, because, oh my goodness, is that comic just chock full and thick and required like two and a half hours worth of edited down podcasts to cover
0: all kinds of fun
1: it is and with that here's to one more day above the roses
0: to one more day above the roses
1: ding Ding.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, 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 um,
1: um, um, the uh
2: um, 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 um um i um um i the um 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 the um 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 the um um i um um uh, um, uh, um, 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 uh, uh, uh yeah. um, 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 the, uh, oh. um uh, uh. The, uh, um, um, de, um, um, uh, um, 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 um,